Well, as a secret agent, I went on assignment the last week. I went south by southwest. I misread the directions to the podcast. I went and covered the Austin or the South by Southwest Film Festival. I thought that's what you all wanted to talk about. So uh, I watched 26 different films. Uh, none of them Hitchcock. <laughs> it's, a, it's a shame he didn't have anything new come out this year. Mm, I don't think so. Not not quite Orson Welles level. Yeah, if Orson can do it. I was really hoping the other side of the wind would kick off a trend where we would just keep rediscovering (laughs) uh, old films from you know great directors from the 40s and 50s that have just like been laying in vaults in various places in the world for 40 years. And much like the other side of the wind, whatever dregs of Hitchcock's work they could find, it would probably be pretty bad. (laughs) Let's not let's not get into that here today. We, we also have Graham here. Uh, we We're, need to assign this take to someone. Yeah, they they said they needed the episode to be spicy this week, so I'm merely delivering what was required. Might be the you, last time we have Graham. <laughs> Don't you think that would be the perfect avenue, though, to start releasing these films that keep being found in like the basements of directors, uh, streaming? Sort of like the Snyder yeah. Cut. <laughs> We'll be getting to South by Southwest, Snyder Cut. Uh, Graham and I have seen Atlanta, so uh, first time we've mentioned that on the show, Atlanta. I've seen, show. I've seen Portland. Uh, <laughs> I've seen a couple other like major cities. It's kind of like that, right? It's like the North by Northwest yeah. Atlanta, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, yeah, we have the Snyder Cut. Uh, finally, that has arrived. <laughs> and we'll do uh, uh, David's documentary discourse and then Hitchcock's North by Northwest. Yeah, so there, there's there's a rundown, but uh, yeah, there was just so much we had to cover this week is why we kind of had to overlook last week. Uh, it definitely didn't have to do with poor coordination or any of us getting overwhelmed on our schedules or anything like that. <laughs> please, we're we're professionals. Yes. <laughs> please, um, there was so much to do and look at, and I know you were moving house and I was at festival, which uh, we'll get into uh, both of those soon. But uh, should and, I jump into South by? Yeah, yeah. Let's hear what's been going yeah. on at the festivals. I saw so much, most of it pretty bad, so I think I should focus on like just like four free standout films from there. Um, what do you say? Do you want the bad stuff or the or the excellent stuff? Uh, if there's a notably bad one, I would love to hear about that. <laughs> Let's start with The Fallout, which is my film of the festival and was chosen by the jury. Um, it's a school shooting movie, but uh, unlike the Villanova one, uh, instead of that, it's more about the aftermath of the shooting. A uh, difficult thing to process, obviously, but uh, that's only two minutes of the movie. The rest of it is emotional turmoil of how teenagers across the country have to be dealing with these things. Uh, it's about a high schooler named Veda and uh, kind of her the fallout of her personal life. Uh, once this happens, she's locked up in the school bathroom because she got a text and left class uh, just a minute away from personal disaster. Uh, but the, the film follows her. Uh, she befriends and tries to forge a too early relationship with the with the kid whose brother got shot in the shooting and um she kind of has an affair with one of the other students who was in the bathroom and um it's oddly really funny um i think it's more funny than book smart <laughs> i think it's a a better comedy than most of the teen comedies lately um and i don't think it exploits the feelings of the shooting to make you feel bad about it it's a pretty good and well balanced about what it wants to present and how it's going to present those carefully without uh, seeming like it's abusing kids in that situation actually uses uh, teenage actors, which has become rare in a teenage movie. Generally, they're like 18 to 25 years old in these things now. So uh, they're all well used. Uh, 
I think it will end up being one of the better films of the year. Um, very high average now and high marks across the board at the festival. Um, director Megan Park is a newcomer. Um, so I'm I'm just really encouraged by it. And uh, Jenna Ortega is the name of the kid. I think they'll both do really big things. I don't know if this will be a huge hit, but I think it will be an indie darling throughout the year. So uh, worth bringing that to the side already. It's great to hear. Great to know that there's at least one uh, big qualitative standout for you there unfortunately it's probably perpetually relevant in the united states yeah as we come back we saw within the last week that returning to normal means two more shootings and um unfortunately this will always be a relevant film i saw some news articles that basically said that they never actually stopped just the news was occupied with covering other things god that could be really true (laughs) i haven't considered that perspective Thanks to uh, Graham for bringing some light new perspectives. <laughs> Again, that's that's why you guys brought me on. I think uh, maybe relevant to Graham's interest also, uh, Woodland, Dark, and Days Bewitched. At least I think that's the difficult name of this documentary. It's about uh, witchcraft and folklore in horror movies, especially uh, centering around three British horror movies, um, especially The Wicker Man, which is the only one I have like a tangential relationship to. Um, and so it branches off from these three, and it kind of covers like the whole like wide swath of cultures going into folklore from like the Americas to Asia, um, and you're looking at how they take their mythology, and how like because we were recording everything with the Salem witch trials, how that translated directly into having a lot of documents that we had to film about it. So um, a lot of interesting branches in that documentary. It's presented academically. Uh, I think that would be a standout if, like, Shudder or someone picks that up. That would be a perfect place for it. But it won the Midnight uh, Jury Selection at the festival. But uh, considering it won the Midnight Selection, it's also three hours long. So you have to think, like, three in the morning. I I think that might be (laughs) out of bounds for uh, jury selection there. Um, They made a few odd choices. I watched uh, about a dozen documentaries, and they chose one about... Uh, someone toppling dominoes. Lily topples the world. Um, I've heard which, about that one. <laughs> which I thought was the only one that didn't have a practical like social use, unless it's like her toppling the patriarchy by uh, <laughs> knocking these rows down. <laughs> but, I mean, it's a cool-looking documentary. I think most of them were pretty good. There were a few that were a little bit sus and uh, not very well-developed. As you can imagine, during COVID times, a lot of documentaries are becoming... Uh, interviews with people in their homes um, that they're very much talking heads without backgrounds now Um, so that's kind of one of the things that stood out about this festival is everything was touched by covid Um, language lessons was another standout uh, from the duplass uh, brothers mark duplass specifically is in it Um, it's about a spanish teacher who engages in lessons um, with this guy whose husband has gifted him a year of lessons, then his husband dies, then he's uh, co-starring with Natalie Morales. They're the only two people we see. We see like pictures of his husband, and he's kind of around at the start, but then it's just them. They just hold it up so wonderfully. I mean, uh, a deeply feeling film that never mentions COVID, but still takes the context of how we shoot movies now, uh, just a Zoom chat like this one, and creates something really meaningful out of that, that spare context. Uh, uh, limitations once again producing interesting uh, at least mid-level art that's pretty fun to look at and uh if anyone else is interested for more i believe you have reviews for uh at least uh, language lessons and woodlands the both of which yeah. i read they're very very good reviews and they got me interested in both films there so check them out when when those come on the website uh before it gets exhaustive last thing uh i think it's just <laughs> better just to highlight things i like because i watched so many that were just fine and 
kind of rubbish to it. There's never, a, never mind that Graham asked for the worst thing you got. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on. Nobody wants to hear about these good things. I, get, I, do I have guess a, we'll get there with the Snyder Cut. Or maybe I do not. have a review of a Demi Lovato's uh, thing on the site, so that might qualify as the worst. That, that was a very good review from you. Very That, that personal perspective you brought to the, the recovery aspect of it, I, I enjoyed reading greatly, and I hope uh, others will, will look out for it, even though I don't know how many other people are interested in, in Demi Lovato's fifth <laughs> documentary or whatever. I think but that's your, what your I did with the review it. too, right? Like I, I tried to connect it to the other three she made when she had albums coming out. So. Oh, all right, and, and I'm reading over. I was like, oh, she had more documentaries. I didn't know about this, and I'm like, <laughs> and I didn't know Calvin knew about these documentaries. This is interesting. This is his niche. Yeah. It's like you're the anime guy. He's the uh, the pop star. The guy. Demi Lovato guy specifically. Uh, when she yeah. when she came out with that Super Bowl performance of the national anthem, I was like, I'm really moved by this. She's in recovery, so I got really into her story and started investigating by then. So, uh, so I kind of been following it, and it was kind of the feature of the festival. So huge downer there. Um, what else? Uh, Potato Dreams of America. If Graham wants. The real bottom of the barrel stuff. Uh, he sure does. <laughs> about a boy who grows up in Russia, um, learns that he's gay, and has trouble processing it. They move to Seattle. Uh, they spend some time in the Scarecrow. Seattle, uh, it's store. awful already. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, they spend some time in Scarecrow. There's there's nothing else developed about his character. Um, the video store, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's meant to be, right? They they go into the gay film section. His dad finds the film, gets angry at him, and a lot of parental rage about that stuff in the movie. Is, it, is this uh, a fictional film or a documentary? I'm, I'm just... I, I think it's based on a true story of someone. but So not not truly terrible, just sort of trite, I guess. Yeah, yeah I mean, nothing like offensive about it, but nothing there either as a movie. I mean, uh, It has Seattle. I'm festival. surprised you don't love it. <laughs> I don't like anything about <laughs> hey, it. <laughs> Even the listeners Seattle? out there can't. <laughs> Can't uh, see my shirt, but I'm wrapping a piece of Seattle apparel here. Yeah, you've got sub, sub pop. Sub pop. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find my Powell shirt, but <laughs> this was the next best thing. Meanwhile, I got the Motorhead. Who knows where they're from? Middle I'm, America. I'm, I'm wearing a, Hell. a, a Hell. white sweatshirt with a with a white undershirt. <laughs> David's now taking off all his clothes. It's, uh... I forgot to take them off before the show, like I usually do. <laughs> yeah. This is a pants-free podcasting You're zone. Easy representing, uh, representing the whites again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't watch a Nazi documentary this week, so I had to find some way to, to get that way in there. <laughs> we need some reprieve from it. Um, other than that, I'd just check out my Alien on Stage stuff on the on the website. I already did a review and a full interview, twenty-minute interview with the directors. So, uh, beloved documentary already for me. I'll watch it at least like five more times. Uh, I love fucking Alien and everything around it. So. Um, highest marks there. Uh, there's there wasn't another outcome I could have had with that. I I was already ready to love it, and I followed their story. I followed their Kickstarter, um, so I was just happy to see it on screen. Honestly, how did it compare to the other Alien musical <laughs> on stage? The the high school one. The high school one. Uh, I think it's I think it's clever. I love that it's like a family affair of workers creating art like in their spare time because they're just like funny bus drivers, like the guy that you'd want to sit by and have lead you through Dorset or uh, London. Um, so they're just performing pantomimes, yearly pantomimes on their stage in Dorset, and then these directors come down and find them. They're the only people in the audience. Nobody's going to these <laughs> shows. So uh, luck kind of struck at the right time, and they got a Kickstarter together, and then they ended up on stage at London's West End. Uh, the employees of the theater said it's the greatest performance ever put on 
at their historic theater. So it's like, I think it's pretty fantastic just that it exists and you get a lot of the background before they get to performing it. So uh, kind of multifaceted doc about like worker culture and people making art on kind of like moonlighting as artists, which I appreciate. Sounds very cool. Um, what do we have next? Uh, should we get into Atlanta? Sure. David, you, you haven't seen this because it, it's what we call a television show. Yeah, right? yeah. Not I, something I was about you're to familiar I'm gonna pull up my pillow here and take a nap. Let me know when you guys. <laughs> They're like little movies that just go one after the other. So I was gonna say for a hook for David, there is like the community carryover there, yeah, right? Yeah. Like Donald Glover, and I think my main perspective I was gonna bring with to this is that it's shaped like community in the way that has like singular episodes about like a subject. I feel like this. Uh, rather than it does develop a story, but every episode is really locked into a scenario in a way that I feel like is developed from what Community did in a sense. I, I, it certainly mm. seems like an extension of Donald Glover's, you know, multifaceted career as he becomes this kind of maverick of everything he touches. You know, I've heard certainly a lot about Atlanta since it first launched, and I've had a lot of interest in it. Uh, just haven't got to it because it's a, it's a it's an FX show, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so uh, since I don't have FX, that was obviously a barrier to begin with. But I think now it's on like Hulu or something. Yeah, it's on Hulu. I think. Uh, maybe I'll check it out next. I don't Hulu's know. Con- convince top me. Marks. Convince me. Pitch me on it now. So Hulu's brought every FX show on there, so they're all available now on that service. So I decided to check it out. I watched it within a few days. It's highly bingeable. I mean, easy carryover story with episodes that are singular in a way that you stand out and you you're like, there's that episode, right? Like there's. Oh, there's there's that episode, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows that episode. Yeah, it plays with uh, style and tone really successfully in each episode. You don't really know what it's going to cover other than it's going to sort of delve into what black artists in America have to face in really creative, sometimes disturbing, usually really funny ways. Um, so one episode might be a like surreal thriller, almost horror movie, and then the next could just be following a minor character around their day as he gets into like sort of comedic hijinks, and it's just remarkably well written and performed. I think. Yeah, I mean, I he's surrounded by such good people, you know, like like he's Stanfield. It's not just so like good. Donald Glover doing like his thing. It's he has a really fantastic ensemble that really is the show i mean like paperboy stuff also it's believable like atlanta rap has been having a moment for about 25 years or 25 Mm -hmm. or 30 years so it's genuinely something of cultural interest and specificity that i think matters to get on screen although i am curious how you know no spoilers but much of the next season will be taking place in europe so (laughs) you know Odd choice for a show called Atlanta. Yeah, but. <laughs> that's, uh, I was kind of like, that doesn't sound right. Unless they mean the Georgia in that area. Is, is there an Atlanta there as well? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that they might be going to a separate area of Europe than that, but that could make for some interesting scenarios. As, as long as like some of it's back at home, maybe some of the characters go back or uh, it traces the distance. Um the two seasons are filming back to back, I think. So, and uh, we'll be getting those soon. And then the show's over, and Donald Glover will hopefully go on to continue to do good things. Um, I think that this is a better outlet for his musical side than a lot of his actual music. I agree. I yeah. think it's like a good blend between his interests. 
I mean, maybe things like, you know, he had a moment with like, this is America, but in some way that like music video of the song kind of, I, I was already okay with the song, but it kind of took it somewhere else. The guy who directed that music video has actually directed a bunch of episodes of the show. Hiro Morai, I believe his name is. He's a really good director. He, it does bring in some good directors and a good like visualization of what you expect from like rap videos, but applied to a, a structure that I haven't really seen in other shows yet. But if you want to ensure David will never watch Atlanta, you can just describe the show as somewhat Lynchian. <laughs> it does have Lynchian elements too, especially that episode. What what does yeah, it nowadays? That, that word has no meaning. The, the Snyder Cut is pretty Lynchian, right? Yeah, yeah, isn't that Lynch-esque as well? <laughs> yeah, um, I'd say it's up there with Lynch and... Uh, um, this, this new black and white version is giving me real Eraserhead vibes. Uh, I know it's been compared to Tarkovsky and Lynch. Um, The fact that it made me want to throw up was very Lynchian. (laughs) So I went through all the Superman movies because it obviously needed to be done to have any context to go through this movie. Somebody had to do it. Yeah. (laughs) The first two were okay. They were pretty good. The rest, uh, not as good. Uh, I didn't get much out of the rest of that journey. Um, Once I got to Snyder's movies especially, uh, pretty basic, kind of meat-headed idea of what superheroes could be um not a lot of fulfillment for me there what did you think of uh papa kent's like murderous libertarian take on uh the character <laughs> um, should have let those children die uh, that's that's a lot of what snyder's doing superman i didn't need to watch the others because he doesn't take it very seriously when he applies it to the character uh superman becomes very murderous and takes out a whole town i believe so uh, um, that's what superheroes I, I, do. I right? think that was, that, that was a very astute assessment of, of Man of Steel there. That, that and, and knowing that about Snyder as well, that you know at one point wanting to to make the Fountainhead as well, I think it's uh... <laughs> so fan favorite for David. <laughs> the movie, the movie, not the not the book. <laughs> it was uh, it was four hours of my time. I spent four hours watching a movie, and it was fine. I mean. Uh, some of the like the old gods fighting each other stuff is kind of interesting. How Snyder gets into the mythologies of it, he's very interested in costuming. I hear a ten percent of the movie was slow motion, uh, which is how it actually plays. Does he still do a uh, speed ramping for every action scene? <laughs> oh, he does. Yeah, fast motion to slow motion to regular motion. Definitely, there's tons of speed ramping, and um, especially the Flash, Wonder Woman, Superman. You get those scenes. Um, I, I think some of the characters are well handled. I think it's Aquaman's best moment on film yet. So uh, for some people that like Batman, Wonder Woman, or Aquaman, maybe there's something there. Uh, I know Bro likes it and has a review coming uh, ideally before this goes up. So uh, there will be a more informed take than uh, my non-comic book take. I think that the Snyder Cut is too transcendent and has <laughs> teleported Calvin to a different plane of existence. <laughs> There's a little bit of it got a bit, your voices twice now got a little bit of distortion and then it just goes out for a moment and then you come back. Hopefully it'll be in the recording there. If not, you can just say the the Warner Brothers ninjas came in and 
we're tampering with your negative press. I was going to say, uh, Calvin, I think your perspective on this is particularly interesting because despite watching all the Superman films beforehand, you did not watch the original Joss Whedon cut of Justice League. Why would he do that sort of <laughs> pertinent research? Um, it didn't seem necessary. Uh, I, I don't believe that Zack Snyder saw that version, so I don't see why I should. He, he didn't. Uh, actually, I found out that... Uh, some of his uh, like his his wife and uh, other, some other people Christopher close to him went Nolan, and saw it. Yeah. yeah, Nolan went and saw it, and then they 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 basically told him, "You can never see this film." So I took that as personal advice that I shouldn't either, right? Uh, yeah, I I don't think anyone should go back and watch that. Kind of, I don't know why you would at this point because this four hour document is far more interesting. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not inclined to watch either, but if I were, I would probably still rather watch all four hours of the Zack Snyder one than Joss Whedon. I just think it's interesting then to kind of compare your take then with like the the kind of rest of the consensus, because it's interesting to see that if the studio had just not fucked with it the first time, then there probably wouldn't be all this fervor and excitement and like praise around it. Like I, I, I think, and it's probably just like an inherent thing, like the film can't help but be better evaluated now yeah. with something like that to compare to with something that is an inherent is butchered this, mess is this a case of the studio like tampering with it or was it because his daughter died and then they were like yeah joss you can come in and finish the film and you can make changes how you want yeah i think they pushed some changes they also were wanting like right. i think although i guess they're... hiring joss whedon in itself counts as some form of butchery yeah <laughs> Yeah, so I think, uh, and, and that's the whole thing. And it, it, it goes back like that's a that's a tragedy in and of itself. So the fact that you know Zack Snyder was able to then go back and and get the opportunity to make the film to his vision, uh, I think is is pretty fantastic. Like the whole endeavor is is a success. I think in yeah. that measure. But uh, you know, in terms of the the film itself, I I don't know beyond that. <laughs> and I think there's some things from what I understand that is like. Is it is it really his original vision? Like the the aspect ratio is kind of the most bizarre choice. Mm. It sounds like I'm like, did you really intend to shoot this in four three? Because you didn't back when the you were making it the first time. <laughs> I think because I think because he was working with shots that were shot for IMAX before. I feel like it's a valid choice if you were shooting it for theaters to shoot it in four three, um, because it be came out on only HBO Max. Of course, uh, he yeah. was shooting it that way originally, and Joss Whedon just zoomed in on the footage, right? Like, uh, all that original... Well, they they, sh- they always shoot with, for uh, safety with those ratios. Like, right. they're going to frame for, uh, like, the widescreen, but then make sure that it works for the uh, full... But they didn't do that part, so... Yeah. <laughs> they just took the original version of it, and uh, I, I like his defense that it's, like, first cow. <laughs> That's... A, that works for me in some way. Uh, that got me on board with it and legitimately got me to watch this. So, Is David frozen now? Yeah. David's gone to the Snyder Zone. He's gone to the ether. <laughs> well, he might actually be watching the Snyder Cut right yeah. now, and that's why. He looks pretty engrossed. Yeah, looks like I he's think, pretty into it. I mean, you're the, just your mention of First Cow, it sold you. It sold David. And, Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm your new host, Graham. All right, uh, all right. I've taken over Welcome for back David. You've been ousted. I've made it back. I'm here. Uh, stupid internet here. I'm hoping when did, we get to the new house, it'll be better, but I'm not optimistic. Did you fall into a new multiverse by chance? <laughs> yeah, how was the Snyder cut? 
<laughs> it's it's a little shorter over on the the other side there. Uh, only only about fifteen minutes. Okay, uh, then maybe you lost the the nightmare ver- vision at the end, which yeah, is really the I big did, new addition. I didn't have shame. that. Can you tell me about that part? So it has a bit with Joker. He doesn't get to say the society line, but they they are making a black and white version yeah. where, he, where he gets to say the line. So uh, there's a third version of Snyder Cut coming. Uh, fantastic. Uh, what a world. What a world we live in. I like that Nightmare's vision. The thing is that it sets up so many sequels I am interested in, even in characters that didn't get me to care about, like Cyborg and Flash. And um, my favorite character in Ezra's Justice League show, Martian Manhunter. Who I who I adore. Uh, I think it's a fantastic character. I want that Green Lantern corpse uh, well, movie from Snyder now. So, so interesting that they kind of. It, it sounds like they uh, shoved in Martian Manhunter in, into the film with like two scenes. Uh, yeah, just, right at the end, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Did he film him like Doctor Manhattan? Do you see Martian Manhunter's Green Dawn? <laughs> <laughs> Um, they tried to make Snyder make some of those cuts, and he's like, I'm not going to cut my only black characters out of the film, so uh, you kind of get some resolution with him just at the end, and that it seems like it'll lead into a sequel that we're never getting, based on what WB has said this week. Uh, so, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know, functionally, where we go from here. I don't know what DC is, or what they want to do, because uh, this is greatly outpa- outpaced their numbers on Wonder Woman 1984. So if that's the movie they're making a sequel to, and this is much more popular, um, they might want to think about that, because I think this has better Wonder Woman moments than that film. I do think it's better than that film or Aquaman um, or some of the other stuff. Not like Joker or not uh, not some of their more experimental work, like uh, Birds of Prey I think was better than this, but... Um, I think it's mid-tier DC. I think it's fine. I'm going to pretend I didn't just hear you call Birds of Prey experimental. <laughs> I mean, like, experimenting outside of, like, a multiverse thing. Or a, a universe. It's, it's very enough, Lynchian. Right. That's where we're setting the bar, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it does feel like we've lost the plot a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> very Lynchian film. Um, <laughs> totally. Okay. Uh, what else do we have? I, I don't have much more on Snyder. Is it my David's turn? I think it's my turn. Yeah. So, uh, speaking of, of Lynchian, uh, you guys like Hitchcock, right? No. Okay. Well, yeah, well what really. about what about Truffaut? Calvin, yeah. you're, you're a Francophile. Yeah. Truffaut. <laughs> oh yeah. I love Truffaut. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if you guys know, but uh, he sat down with these interviews with Alfred Hitchcock in the uh, the early '60s there. And I've read some of that book. Yeah, yeah. He wrote a book afterwards. I was just getting there. Yeah. Uh, well, in, in 2014, uh, there's a documentary that came out about the book, kind of, but also not really about the book itself. Uh, the book is more so kind of just like a jumping off point for his, uh, the director, Kent Jones, to kind of explore the relationship between Hitchcock and Truffaut a little bit, but also mostly just, you know, kind of regurgitate and explore, you know, Hitchcock in a kind of biographical sense. In little ways, and I, and I think uh, it was it was surprisingly uh, insightful for that. I was expecting something like really cheap and uh, just you know kind of obvious uh, about uh, you know the legacy and kind of going over the greatest hits and stuff, which it kind of does as well. Uh, you know, I wish it dug a little deeper on some of the the deeper cut Hitchcock films like The Wrong Man or Strangers on a Train or, or whatnot. I don't even think some like 
Trouble with Harry even got like a name mention, but it you know it goes through some that you also necessarily wouldn't expect like uh, the lodger it talks about a little bit there and then of course it goes into really big depth with uh, Vertigo and Psycho especially uh, you know oh, those old chestnuts yeah well when, uh, it's that's what happens when you get a talking head from like Scorsese who just goes on like a ten minute rant about Vertigo at, at some point <laughs> which is great and it's all great stuff to see but it's like yeah. I've I've seen this I've seen him talk about this movie like ten times now, <laughs> but it's really interesting. I, I found some of the uh, the best value was in seeing a lot of like behind the scenes footage of like early Hitchcock and home movies and stuff that he kind of splices in with all the conversations and actual you know audio from the the interviews that uh, Truffaut conducted. And so having that all in a, in a visual audio uh, format there and, and seeing that all and having it all kind of put together in front of you, I think is really valuable uh, to have. And I found it uh, a, a good experience and a, you know, a complimentary one to the, the movie that we have this week, even though they didn't talk about North by Northwest all that much. What? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was when they, they looked over a little more. They were saving it for us. They didn't even talk about Rear Window, really. I mean, there was like a couple mentions of it, but really it was like lots about Psycho, lots about Vertigo, and then little bits about, you know, high points throughout. Like, I don't think there was any mention of like his 30s films, though, like the British films. Those bastards. (laughs) I think there was maybe like a clip or two of the 39 steps. Well, at least it got in there. That's a good one. Yeah, probably. (laughs) There's There's definitely definitely some in the book, yeah. Yeah, and the book obviously goes over yeah, like, it talks way more. about every movie. Yeah. Uh, right. Except for the ones he hadn't made yet, obviously, by that point. Which I think was like from Topaz on. Which are worth talking about, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. You are the, the expert when it comes to Hitchcock there, which, of course, is why you brought why we brought you here for, for Hitchcock. This is our, our first Hitchcock. This is why you brought me? Shit, you could have told me that at the start. <laughs> or I pissed, pissed off the entire uh, listener base. I don't think we had you for Notorious. Um... Now, we, that was one we did in person. We actually we sat on this couch. No, not this couch. This is a new couch. We sat in this living room. We sat we on a couch, at least. Yeah. Yes. Certainly it was a couch. <laughs> Now uh, none of us are sitting on the same couch. We're all on uh, different spaces, living spaces, would you say? Yeah. Conducting I mean... a podcast separately about uh, North by Northwest. Which, which of course is uh, maybe the first Hitchcock film I saw. Well, probably the first I've been aware of. I think one it, of the first ones. Yeah, it's one of the big one of the big ones. Its adventurous nature, I think, makes it a little bit more of an, an easy entrance point for a lot of people. It's it's super iconic. It's really light. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's definitely a kind of inheritor from the likes of the the Thirty Nine Steps, especially. And you could see the immediate influence, of course, into like even you know the the. I think you guys have touched on and other is the James Bond films, I think is an obvious point. I think you, you, Graham, you were probably the first person to point that out to me that it's like a proto bond film in many ways. Yeah. And yeah, and you can see that very directly in from Russia with love where it actually 
uh, pretty much quotes the crop duster scene in a climactic helicopter duel, which is not nearly as exciting as what Hitchcock did. So for me, my high school film class was essentially a Hitchcock appreciation class, which uh, wasn't... That's pretty great. Which wasn't as advertised. I think they yeah. all should. Um, they showed us a couple of Spielbergs, but otherwise it was entirely Hitchcock uh, for that uh, lesson. That's what got me into like writing about film. They sent me to the theater to write for the school newspaper. So uh, a lot of why I'm doing this is probably connected to my early Hitchcock history, which began with Rope, Vertigo, and North by Northwest. And that's when I fell in love with the director and, and his body of work. Uh, those three should be enough to convince anyone. Um there's so much in those three films. Of course, we had to watch Psycho from Home. They didn't want to show that in school. So, uh, a <laughs> few I others. Remember, I think I remember a quote from William Friedkin saying that if you just watched all of, of Hitchcock's films, you could like learn how to be how the, the language of film or learn filmmaking just from that. You don't have to go to school or anything. He just said watch Hitchcock movies. It was a it's brilliant syllabus, yeah. and it it did lead me right into James Bond. I hadn't watched any James Bond until that semester. And that was like my launching off point. Went right to Dr. No, got a good VHS tape. Um, <laughs> I, I got super into Bond right away at the same time as Hitchcock. So they'll always be correlated in some way for me. Definitely. Well, with North by Northwest, not only is it a good entry point for people new to Hitchcock, but I think it's also like a maybe more than any other film he made, it's like an encapsulation of all his uh, prior work because I think the the wrong man theme that he has where it's an innocent man who gets blamed for something he didn't do. You can see that all the way back with the lodger and then, you know, 39 steps is like a spy thriller like this. Saboteur is actually the closest movie to this that he did, which is uh, not one of his better movies, but it's very much a man on the run across America. And yeah, it's even got ends the, on, yeah. Yeah. It ends on the, the statue of Liberty instead of mm -hmm. Mount Rushmore. Mm -hmm. For me, very like formal uh, revisitation of Saboteur here that that we're getting, um, and I I like for me I love a lot of Hitchcock movies. Uh, many of them are like two room dramas, right? Uh, they're very uh, pot boiler in a room waiting for the tension to explode, and this goes all over. I love the multi locations. It it became such a template, and it's still the way like Mission Impossible is shot, where they're like we have five scenarios, let's make a movie and fill in the gaps between those scenarios and stunts that we film. Yeah. It's a, it's a very big movie, and Hitchcock actually, I think he demanded that MGM film it in Panavision, which I think they only released one other movie. Isn't this one in, uh, in VistaVision, I thought? Maybe I'm getting my visions confused. <laughs> I think this one's in, in VistaVision, and I always kind of make a note of it, because uh, VistaVision is the most glorious format man has ever created. And, and North by Northwest is one of the prime examples. Uh, I was, was yeah. watching it on the Blu-ray I own, which I think was like a special edition they did, not just like the plain old Jane Blu-ray. It's a digibook one. And uh, God, it's so beautiful. Yeah, the 50th anniversary one. The restoration on it is just so pristine. That being said, I can see room for improvement with the 4K, which should be released at some point, I would assume. Like, that'll look amazing. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is that not out with the other uh, Hitchcock sets that they've already produced? No, that that one is uh, Vertigo, Psycho, The Birds, and... Please not Marnie. Rear Please Window? Not Marnie. Okay. No, it's not Marnie. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an odd one to include in the... 
Yeah, it usually gets like packaged together with the birds. Uh, I think like something about the rights with it, but the the tippy two pack. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I I quite agree in terms of this kind of being a, an encapsulation of uh, Hitchcock's favorite themes, favorite ideas, favorite bits, and everything he's kind of done redoing in a lot of ways coming up. It's even got a lot of the kind of like romantic uh, melodrama stuff that's all played in, you know, greatly with uh, Ava Marie Saint and such. Wouldn't and, you say that it? Wouldn't you say that it also like spans like three genres? Like it's a adventure film, it's a very serious spy film, but it's also a credible comedy romance. It's it's definitely very comedic and has lots of romance stuff. It it tries to be so many things, and I think sometimes that's that's to its detriment. Uh, yeah, I think one of the, one of the complaints you could lodge against it is that the film is so much it's a little scattered sometimes but it fits in so much that there's always something to to kind of chew into and enjoy and even when it's not at its best those elements are still fun you know like the hitchcock humor sometimes it can misfire but you know you still like it because it's it's hitchcock style of things uh you know, and all that. Yeah, to the to the film's credit, that bigness it does feel like a huge adventure, and Definitely. you feel feel the distance in a way. But you know, just like a big travel uh, trip of your own, there's a lot of time in hotel rooms and stuff. Yeah. And I feel like there's like one too many stop in a hotel room to sort of plot out their next move. What I love, it's the first film like this that I saw where it's the journey of a suit. Like, uh, uh, given all these places he travels, he should have changed 20 times. He changes once in the movie. Um, and it's the journey of a suit in a man in a special suit that's always rated by fashion magazines as cinema's greatest suit of all time. Is, this is, one Cary Grant wears. <laughs> it, it always is. Like, invariably, it comes back to this. Because this is the influence of, like, James Bond and getting that guy in the classic suit. And it's really about the travel of clothing. And uh, he's the only one dressed like this, really, in the movie. And it, it is elaborate, and it looks good. And y- you don't want the suit to be damaged, and you feel something whenever it is. It, it should be said, uh, however, as well, that uh, Cary Grant is not the only dapper gentleman in the film. There's, no. there's quite the cast of uh, big-name players here that, that Hitchcock enlisted. Would you like to touch on who you are alluding to? I, oh, I think the, the, the duo in particular of James Mason and Martin yeah. Landau are, are terrific, even though uh, I, I wish there was a little bit more to Mason's character in particular. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's so much supposed mystery around them, especially in the beginning, that they're kind of just left uh, underdeveloped at some points. But, of course, you know when, when you got someone who's as uh, kind of magnetic and uh, seductive as James Mason... And then Martin Landau just makes this kind of perfect lackey for him with these kind of interesting uh, undertones in terms of their, their relationship there. And I think it creates a very interesting dynamic all the way up to the, the conclusion. That's uh, another parallel to the James Bond series where you have, you know, some of the best scenes in the movie are when the hero is engaging in, like, sort of veiled, polite conversation with the villain, like... But there's this undercurrent of menace, like they're sort of just chatting, and he's like, "Oh, you pour him a drink," and you you know things are gonna not go so well. That that early scene in the mansion, I think, is a great, uh, you know, very indicative of what you're kind of going going at there, where like like Mason's talking to him in this indirect way about, you know, what what he thinks he is and all that, and and Curry Grant's just like, "I don't know what the hell you're talking about." <laughs> <laughs> Structurally, I think what I like about all of that and what works and I think inspires a lot of Bond is that it feels like they're finding the film along the way. 
Um, you can't predict anything that North by Northwest is going to do before you see it, because the only MacGuffin is the microfilm, which is something solved way at the end. Until then, it's piecing together these pieces and set pieces, and you never quite know where it's going to go. I mean, North by Northwest is a very specific compass compass direction but it doesn't go there um it goes well actually it's not even a compass direction it is it's, <laughs> there, it's like a there's very... no, there's northwest by yeah. north but there's no north by northwest oh, okay which yeah they were debating several titles uh along the way and they ultimately settled on that one the other contender was the man in abraham lincoln's nose what that, <laughs> i can't be serious <laughs> it is that's what hitchcock wanted because he thought it was so funny that uh you would. He wanted to have Cary Grant go inside the Lincoln nose and then like sneeze, and that would give him away, which never ended up happening in the, it's the movie. Probably but. for the best. The yeah. The big climax of Mount Rushmore, super iconic and uh, fantastic. It almost overshadows the horrible tragedy upon which the the mountain is you know precipitated in its build. Uh, mm. and, it, and it makes for like a nice memorable uh, aspect of the film and it certainly gives the, the climax this kind of like titanic sense of scale and certainly of setting is in particular I know they also tried to call it Breathless which would have never worked for a movie title so <laughs> thank god you have to be a real that. asshole to call your movie Breathless I agree. <laughs> what do you think you are god god, god art <laughs> I don't know where I'm going right? here yeah two, double D <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, that finale it not only is huge and exciting, but it has this sort of almost like meta pop art feel about it, just like these characters scampering across some of America's biggest iconography. And the whole movie is very sort of knowing in its uh, visual style, I would say. Like, I really paid attention to how, like, geographic, not geographic, uh, geometric the angles and stuff of the lines within the compositions and the matte screens and it, it's just very uh stylistic mm -hmm. particularly that that soul bass opening kind of really sets the stage for that mm -hmm. with the the grid style and you got the the pounding bernard herman score going in the background all so you, you've got all of the like the the hitchcock elements there coming together these partnerships and stuff that really define the highlights of his careers they all kind of converge, and, and one of the best collaborations there, like Shy of Psycho, I, this might be his, his best opening sequence, I guess behind Vertigo, too, because he got that, 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 that threesome there again. They're just, they're so good together. <laughs> yeah. Would you say this stands up with Hitchcock's best work, I, or is this not quite there for you? I, I think it, it does. Like, it's not my favorite favorite because i think there's some elements like i said that, that don't quite work like some of some of the bits uh uh like early on i think the the, the drunk bit where he's driving the car is just way too too goofy like Cary <laughs> grant's hamming it up to just such a ridiculous degree and you got the it went a little a little long yeah it's it's a little long and it's just it doesn't work well with the score which is so fantastic and thrilling and mm -hmm. Cary grant's just like like I love that moment. So honestly, <laughs> it's so funny to me. Um, I I think in terms it's of it's good. It's just it just goes on. It's a lot. On. In in terms yeah. of the comedy for the film, um, I think the best sequence is the the um, what, what do you call it? Where 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 they're they're bidding the bidding scene. The auction. Yeah, the yeah. auction. That's that's the funniest scene of the movie to me. Where for me, yeah, I mean, like the airplane and everything gets mentioned a lot, the crop dusting. But for me, the auction is the heart of the movie and what it's really doing well, because it defines so much about his character. 
it tells you everything about who Cary Grant is well, in this situation. It's one of the That's moments. Also oh, I was gonna say it's one of the moments where he stops becoming kind of an, an incompetent boob who just keeps mm-hmm. like fumbling his way through things and fucking things up and into the situations and making things worse and starts actually like strategizing and is able to like cleverly manipulate his way out of a situation. It's also a classic Hitchcock scenario where the hero sort of has to evade the the villains in a public setting like in the 39 steps the protagonist has to make an impromptu political speech as he winds up on the stage of a rally and this was like the the next evolution of that yeah definitely i think the uh comparison with the 39 steps is perhaps most apt in terms of not only the uh the the style and type of film that hitchcock makes but in terms of its uh, enjoyment and pace as well and how it's mm-hmm. just constantly moving and going places and, and well, very the 39 humorous. steps is a snappier movie definitely at, like, definitely that one's like less than an hour and a half i think and this one's like yeah. almost two and a half hours and it could probably be two hours and you'd be it probably good that that would be my only thing with it is that uh watching it so many times this must be my fifth or sixth viewing it really lags at some point like you say some of those scenes like the driving could be a one minute scene um at least whatever you, you do don't in, cut the scene short where Cary Grant is putting on that windsock of a shirt in the hospital room <laughs> the, the baggiest shirt I've ever seen you just watch him take it out of the bag and... well, I think like the point of that is like undermining what you've seen of him in the, the most powerful suit in movies right like I, I think having him undress and get into that shirt is like uh, just a play I also like, think that undress. was just the style then oh yeah you guys yeah. just wore baggy shirts <laughs> No, I think yeah, the the film is filled with lots of humor. It's it's probably Hitchcock's funniest film. Like I, I would say something like the trouble with Harry was probably his attempt at like an overt out and out comedy. Yeah, and I, I think this is funnier. Than yeah, it definitely is that the comedy there is it's meant to be kind of like bleak and, and sarcastic, uh, but it doesn't really work as much. Uh, it's a beautiful film, but it's not it's not really good here. This this has its most consistent quality of comedy but even then because there's you know it's, like i said some of it's mixed but I, I think generally it does well when you know even if it's low moments like Cary grant shaving with the tiniest razor yeah. in the world. <laughs> and the guy's me, just it's... like looking at him next to him like he's, he's so confused <laughs> for me i'd say like most consistently comedic is rope just in that the whole setup is like a comedy of a funeral um uh, it, it's not laugh out loud funny but for me it's very comedic and and intelligently funny that's a, it's a very dark sense of humor you have there. <laughs> it is. And I think yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember too. any any jokes. Uh, it's in not that it's one. not a jokey movie, <laughs> but, but I think I think yeah. I know what you mean there, Cal. It has a very dark humor to it that I think Hitchcock would approve sure. of being a comedy. Uh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think even his most serious movies are still laced with uh, goofy moments. Like Frenzy is one of his darkest, and in its darkest moments, he still manages to come up with some morbid gags. Yeah, I I think uh, there are lots of directors that are like that. I think another obvious example is someone like John Ford. You know, he's got a, a very kooky sense of humor that he inserts into all his films. We just talked about him last time with Sergeant Rutledge and very funny movie. <laughs> yeah, and and so, uh, yeah, but that's part of the the Hitchcock ticket that you sign up for. There, you want some of that that comedy blended in with with everything and the kind of inherent humor here. I will say, I think one moment that's not meant to be as funny, but maybe is as well, is is the moment in the the UN when 
he gets framed for the murder just because the sequence of events is, is so quick and ridiculous that, that he just gets so framed like that. Like, I, I can't believe that he grabs the knife from the guy's back. <laughs> it seems like the dumbest decision you could make in that moment. But also, I'm like, kind of like, it, it, it happens so quickly that you can kind of understand how he just does the stupidest thing. <laughs> yeah, I think the way that it comes across is good enough, but it, you definitely have to stretch your disbelief a bit yeah here. yeah a little bit it's again I, I get a laugh out of it and i can't tell entirely if it's intentional or not so i'll give that one to hitch i'll, I'll assume that it was meant to be humorous i love that they get shots like that just even from outside the un where they're where they're not supposed to shoot right and they get in a van and they're able to get these more uh, hidden shots for this movie that uh, i think it, it adds a lot you have to have these sense of location and that's what really moves the movie forward for me well, it's especially easy for Hitchcock to do that sort of guerrilla filmmaking because he's you don't even need your actors there. He's just going to slap it on a rear, project, rear projection <laughs> screen anyway. Oh, my right. God. There's so much rear projection in this movie. Is this the most rear projected movie? <laughs> Very well could be. I, I mean, I, I, don't know. I know Hitchcock. Notorious was... has a lot of rear projection, too, when they're even just like sitting on a bench in a park. It's just rear projected background of people walking. It's like you couldn't get them to do that on a set. It's the same thing here, like a couple of sequences where it's people like walking around and stuff and it's just rear projecting. You can tell the actors are just walking in place and it's it's so uh it it, it looks It's part of the charm though for me at this point. Just sure. Like yeah, you we're all indoctrinated quirk. by this point, so we're we're taken by that, particularly in a in a Hitchcock film. And but there's definitely some cases where it's like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> the truth was he was just lazy. Yeah. I think. He, he liked liked control. To, Hitchcock liked control, yeah. and he didn't like to leave the studio or do anything. I'm surprised he actually went to Mount Rushmore and he filmed in the visitor center, you know, and uh, they they did that. So that that's surprising. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I want to talk about the ending. I want to mention the famous ending of the film, like the very, very ending, because I think, like you said earlier, Graham, the whole film is very encompassing of, of Hitchcock in total, mm-hmm. and, and I will include that in even some of his faults, and particularly his very sudden and abrupt denouements, uh, and that the film just like, it's it's just over, like, it just as yep. soon as it happens, like, Hitchcock's like, all right, all right, I'm done, and he closes the book on it. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and it famously, it leads to, like, one of the most famous sex jokes in, in, in movies with, with the train. But it's always kind of undermined to me a bit by, by just how abrupt that, that conclusion and, comes, that switchover from going yeah, from and Rushmore to I've the defended, train. <laughs> I've defended a lot of uh, his abrupt endings in the past, but I do agree with you. I think it doesn't, like, it's a cute gag, but it doesn't, fully work for me because this whole movie is such a big blow up of his stuff like it's epic scale epic length and you you couldn't end a have a proper ending for this one you had to go with the super clipped <laughs> ending yeah this one time you, you really wanted to get to that that sex joke i think and i see i see the wheels turning there where it's like he's pulling her up from the side of the mountain and you just you flip mm-hmm. it around and it's into the the carriage which you kind of referenced earlier the the baggage area there and then of course you have the big sex joke there at, at the very yeah, final I mean, it shot. works as a gag yeah but it's just like you you want something a little more substantive especially since like 
I love how the last time you see James Mason's character in the movie, he doesn't even seem like upset at his fate. He's, I don't remember what his line is, but he's just like more bemused. <laughs> he makes a quip of some kind yeah. about it. Like, at, and this is just like after his henchman has like fallen to his death. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's the the last you see of him. Yeah. I mean, you don't really, you can put everything together, but it just would have been nice to have. I, I certainly agree with that, but at the same time, we're also complaining that movie's too long. So that's true. Yeah, uh, and I, I will say though, as, as far as with the sex joke as well, that reminds me of another element, which is that this the film is so brazen, it's so overt in its in its sexual aspects. Uh, I think because the the limitations of of what you could say and do in American movies at this point was really loosening by the end of the fifties. And mm-hmm. and so I think it gave Hitchcock license to indulge a lot. And oh, he was totally horning out with the dialogue. Oh between yeah, them it's it's them it, on the train. It's a bit excessive to to me, uh, but I also might just be more inclined to prefer the the, the greater subtlety of the code, you know, enforced restrictions. Uh, restrictions. Do you think this uh, this smoochin scene topped <laughs> Notorious in terms of its length? It's 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 competing. That's for sure. It's trying. <laughs> yeah, He's, I guess he still couldn't show more than like two seconds of uh, unbroken macking. Yeah. So <laughs> what what they had to do to get around it is just lots of se- sequential two second kisses or whatever. Just, just keep doing them. Or they just like rub their mouths on each other and then like whisper <laughs> something in their ear. It's a dirty. Oh, movie. that's how you do it. It's, it's a horny, <laughs> horny movie. <laughs> I think that I think that does set up the scene for Bond pretty well, though. It yeah. carries over a lot of those elements too. That that definitely um, sets the template for Bond for sure. That's one of the big elements. Yeah. I, I'm not really opposed to it, but uh, I, I mean, he does get to create a female character here that I feel is one of his strongest, in that she's very capable, she's funny, she's interesting, and she has as much stake as. Um, our main character, which I think is interesting for Itch. I think that's a big difference actually between how he might've made this movie in the past where the, the female role is sort of an incidental character that the protagonist bumps into and then drags along on his crazy, crazy journey. Whereas this time she's, she's this like the double agent and she's sort of setting things in motion. Yeah. Yeah. It does kind of, kind of come as a much later plot revelation that uh, may, may not be as well set up as, as it could be because she's introduced on the, the, the train once we kind of get there. But overall, well, I think that's because well. they're like finding the film as they make it right. Like it, they didn't even have her yeah. till the train. So they the, couldn't have had her in there. In a way, I th- that element does work for it in that the movie is kind of like unfolding in, in different yeah. ways and, and adding new elements as it goes along. It works in terms of kind of keeping the sustained interest of mystery but also if you try and think about it in a more comprehensive retrospective it's like mm, this isn't structured incredibly well in terms of no. giving everything out but when you're watching it it doesn't necessarily feel that way mm-hmm. yeah I, I would say just uh, overall North by Northwest is, is definitely in competition for it's a good movie yeah it's one, one of his most entertaining and Hitchcock sure. is going places <laughs> one of his most good movies um <laughs> Definitely one of my favorite adventure films and the template for so many things I fucking love. Um, so for me, very significant, informative. For me, finding other movies, because I don't think I was into any adventure movie before this. I mean, uh, like I said, I hadn't seen a James Bond. I had only seen like a Mission Impossible or two before now, uh, before I had seen this. So, um, 
for me, everything was new. Mm-hmm. I was sort of getting all that stuff at the same time as a kid, but it still reigns tall as a foundational sort of pulp adventure movie. And I think a lot of what its influence still has yet to top it in any real way. Like, I don't think I like any James Bond movie more than I like this movie. Yeah, I, I can't think of anything that necessarily competes with it in terms of uh, quality. Again, maybe like overall, I think there are, there are smoother films, better films. Mm-hmm. But uh, on a scene-to-scene basis, certainly there there's a reason why so much of North by Northwest is uh, iconic. And if you just take those those specific sequences and elements, uh, they'll, they'll... Like where he puts on the baggy shirt. <laughs> I was, well, firstly, I was thinking more of like the climax, or you've got the the crop duster scene, of course. Oh, those are fine too. Yeah, those are okay. <laughs> I, I think one of them makes an appearance, at least in that list you did, right? Uh, yeah, it makes an appearance, not number one, but not at the bottom either. Yeah, so that's that's definitely something to remember. Uh, Graham's fantastic. Uh, Check it out on the Twin Geeks. Yes. I'm the hype man now. Thanks for that plug. We'll include we'll include that sound clip anytime we introduce a website piece on the show. Check it we out on the Twin Geeks. Play bum, bum, that bum. immediately after Jesse screaming Lumet. <laughs> we got to get that back into use. When's our next Lumet? Maybe we need him on. We need a live rendition. We'll have to see. We'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll contact him for another uh, Lumet film. Lumet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's French, right? Yeah. Um, I I really like North by Northwest and its place among Hitchcock films too. I mean, it's not just I think a great picture overall, but I think it it comments on his history of work and combines so many interesting elements. And it feels like him riffing on himself and parodying himself in some really funny ways. That like the comedy isn't only the jokes. It's it's Hitchcock making this movie for me too. He's sort of making a monument to himself, which yes. ties into the theatrical poster where it has Hitch's head on the Mount Rushmore great, great alongside the presidents. Yeah. I, will, I will say as well that this might be one of the best Hitchcock cameos. Uh, you know, he gets it out of the way early and he throws it up there with his director title card as well. And he gives himself it's too obvious. I, I, you I gotta go for those those I hidden like ones. I, I, I like it a lot. Just I like the humor of it. Him him missing the bus. I think it's it's humor. no, it's good. <laughs> he he said that he started making them easier to find because and he always put them in the beginnings because he didn't want people to be distracted yeah, and trying to for look for him in the like middle of the movie. Yeah, because like, I think like he, he's also at the beginning of Psycho as well. I'm pretty sure. That's, that's the other thing. This came out like a year before Psycho and right after Vertigo too. Just a bam, bam. You know, three fantastic films, one right after another. Mm-hmm. And very different. He wanted to shift gears after Vertigo, and I think this is about as far as you can get. It is. From, it is kind of funny yeah. though that he blamed James Stewart for being too old for the movie not succeeding, and then hired Cary Grant for the next movie. <laughs> yeah. You just couldn't quit him. Is that and late? Is that not why Cary Grant uh, turned down James Bond? I've heard that. He thought he was too old. Did, was he offered James uh, Bond? Yeah, right after this, he, he was, was the first person I offered, I believe. But it's interesting. One of the first people offered James Bond. Yeah, I think he, was, he turned it down. He was probably too old, but you know, yeah. <laughs> that's that's another thing. I guess you could lobby. Like, uh, isn't Ava Marie Saint only like twenty five when she made the movie? <laughs> no. She- <laughs> Was she actually 25? I, think so. I know her character said that, they, and I was like, no way, you're like 35. Oh, no, I, that's right. I think that's that's right. She says her character's 25, and then I'm like, no, no, not quite. 
you, you, you try and say it, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I think she's actually, like, 32. She was 32, I think, during the movie. Or maybe older. So, let's see. 1924? 35. Alright. That's math, right? I was right on the money. And she looked good. No, yeah. no disparaging. Def- definitely not, but uh, we all know what a 25-year-old looks like. <laughs> said that with a hint of ominous... Uh... Yeah, what what is a 25-year-old? Well, on that note, uh, I think we'll wrap up here. Uh, Do you have one in your basement? <laughs> no, no. Show us. I don't. I don't have a basement. It's a. It's an attic. Wait. So where is it? I mean, where where are they? Where where are they? They're the uh, they're they're at the house actually. Uh, not here. We'll have to wait till next week when I'm when I'm moved in there to to and meet you my. you reveal your twenty five year old. Yes. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, if if I'm still here next week, if the FBI hasn't tracked me down, uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Thanks, Graham, for joining us on this uh, Hitchcock discussion. Thanks for inviting me back. I'm sure that you won't make that mistake again. <laughs> really good show, though. I, I enjoyed half of it that I heard. So, <laughs> yes. very happy with that always, part. Always technical problems, no matter how much we try and, and fix things. He was in the Snyder verse. <laughs> it's true. I, I'm never leaving. All right. Well, uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Make sure, as always, to check out our website, thetwingeeks.com, for our latest reviews, retrospectives, and features. You can follow us on Twitter as well, at the Twin Geeks, and individually at Calvin Kempf and at David A. Punch and uh, at Graham Austin. I think is his Twitter handle at at C Graham Austin. Sure. Yeah. That 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 one. That's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> I think. C Graham Austin. I believe is what he said. No. Yeah, I'm not 100% on that. I'm so infrequent on Twitter. Well, if you but want you to, if you want to follow, follow Graham for other <laughs> shitty Orson Welles takes, don't forget to I've got many. Don't forget to check out our sister video game show as well, The Daydream Cast with Pavlos and Brogan, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are played. Leave a review and rating if you can. We'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema. What the film is though, uh, I don't know. We didn't decide, so it'll be a mystery next week. The Snyder Cut, yeah. (laughs) Starring David's 25-year-old. Hey, it's Calvin again with the editorial note. Um, Apologies for some of the Zoom quality. I was in and out of the call, so that happened. And secondly, we did decide on our film next week. We're doing Preston Sturgis' 1944 film, The Miracle of Morgan Creek. Check it out on the Twin Geeks. (laughs) 